0: Hello and welcome to Short Talks from the Hill, a podcast from the University of Arkansas. My name is Delaney Bartlett. On this episode, Lisette Lopez, Swiki Davis. Assistant Professor of English in the J. William Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, discusses her research on the enduring nature of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Welcome to the show. Thank you
1: for having me. You
0: are so welcome. So this year, 2018, marks the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein. People still reading it, enjoying it.
1: What do you think makes it so enduring? Well... The the thing about Frankenstein itself is that it's one of those stories that is so interested in um, really kind of getting at the heart of what makes us human and what makes us um, act out in monstrous ways that I think it's a story that is very easily molded into a number of different contexts. And so it's a story that like a lot of other classic or canonical stories or texts, has been largely popularized through adaptations, and the part of the reason for that is because it's a story that's so fascinating and has so many moving parts, and it really lends itself to a number of different retellings um, and reimaginings. So I think that that's probably one of the, the major reasons why, and it touches on so many um, themes that are still relevant to society, and specifically the fact that uh, humanity is always up against kind of new technological developments. And it's, I mean, Mary Shelley's novel is widely considered to be one of the first science fiction novels. And, and it has so many different applications today in a number of different contexts. So it's really, I think, one of the reasons why people are still so fascinated by that story and, and monster stories in general.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, So one of the things that you teach about is has been adapted quite a bit Mm -hmm. into a lot of of different uh, media in so many ways. So um, do you see sort of trends in how Frankenstein gets adapted? So for example, are like the adaptations that you see more currently different in some way than maybe the earlier adaptations,
1: like the Universal Studios adaptation? Yeah. So basically, one one thing that people don't know about Frankenstein is that it's it's a text that was adapted almost immediately. So the novel is published in eighteen eighteen, and in eighteen twenty three, it's already um, on the stage. And between eighteen twenty three and eighteen twenty six, there's at least fifteen different versions on stage in both England and France. Um, and it's so it's that's not an anomaly per se. The basically everything was has always been adapted into other forms and media, but Uh, What you do see in adaptations more generally, but specifically it's very easy to trace with the Frankenstein story, is that it, um, depending on the genre that it gets adapted to or the form that it gets adapted to, um, it's very interested in kind of picking up on the cultural anxieties or fears of of a particular moment. And so um, in the 1930s films that you mentioned, the the classic kind of Universal Studios films, uh, you see, for example, um, a real emphasis on the technological con- um, context of that period. It's very much interested in this kind of post-World War I um, moment. It's interested in the rise of psychology in particular. So you have like that first instance of this abnormal brain to come into the story, which you know before that had never appeared in other adaptations. And so you do see specific moments or p- p- particular cultural context um, popping up in any um, given moment. Um, In the 1950s, you have a revival of the Frankenstein story through the Hammer Studios films, and you you see very much a post-World War II context emerging there, um, and specifically the way that gender gets treated in that film. In the 1957 film, um, it's actually... Um, you know, sometimes we like to think of like gender um, being kind of always kind of a linear progression, and you you see it actually much more much more conservative depiction of Elizabeth, the main um, female character in that film. Um, when compared to the 1930s film. And more recent adaptations um, we're starting to see a lot more um, artificial intelligence and cyborg narratives um, getting kind of caught up in the or retooling the Frankenstein myth and even, even films that aren't um, specifically tied to Frankenstein, so like a film like uh, Splice, which was came out in 2009, which is basically it's a Frankenstein story that's not Frankenstein, um, and that one has everything to do with kind of genetic modification and gene splicing, and um, you know thinking about can we create new hybrid creatures that are kind of beyond the human. So you absolutely see these these new contexts, and you see absolutely trends coming up depending on the types of technology that are available at a particular cultural moment. Mm.
0: So um, many people are familiar, most familiar with Frankenstein's monster from the movies mm-hmm. and have never read the book. No. What, if, there, if that's all you're really getting of Frankenstein's monster are the movies, the monster movies, what mm. would they be missing if they haven't actually read the book?
1: So you're probably going to hear something that you, you probably wouldn't expect to hear from an English professor. Um, I, I actually think that the adaptations are incredibly valuable, so I'm not going to kind of you know say that they're not um, valuable. Um, they do usually, they take a different turn. Um, and depending on whether it's film or television or comic book form, I mean, every form and every genre and every medium has its own conventions. And so I've actually seen some really great um, comic book adaptations that I would argue, you know, if this was what you got and this was the only version you were gonna get, fine. Um, but the thing with the reading the novel and then looking at it in particular, um, kind of with the hindsight of understanding 200 years of adaptation. I think one of the things that people maybe forget or don't realize in reading the novel is that it's very much a philosophical novel. Um, It's very much a novel of ideas that's not interested in kind of the flattening out of um, any kind of specific moral tradition or or position. Um, It's very much a novel of ambiguity, but it's a novel that's also very much interested in being an adaptation itself. And so Mary Shelley is in many ways rewriting, um, or kind of doing a mashup of uh, Paradise Lost, and of Faust, and of the Prometheus legend. And so she's taking these three main stories and remixing them into a new gothic tale um, for her day and her particular scientific moment, and I think that that's something that maybe people kind of f- forget um, until you read the novel and you see how how many literary allusions there are, how many references to all of the books that she was reading, along with her partner and you know her friends and her family members. Um, when you start seeing this kind of richly layered narrative, you start realizing that um, what Mary Shelley is doing is not only just trying to. Um, create a new story but to create a new story out of old parts Um, and so the novel itself becomes this kind of metaphor for um, reanimation (laughs) of an old story of old stories that have become outdated or out you know, moded and that need to be refashioned for a new era. So I think that that's one of the things that um, the students who take my class on Frankenstein where, you know, we'll spend a third of the class on the novel and then two thirds on adaptations, I think that that's what they leave with more than anything that this is about a larger tradition of remaking new stories and remaking monsters of our own. (laughs) Music for Short Talks from the Hill was written and performed by Ben Harris, guitar instructor at the University of Arkansas. For more information and additional podcasts, go to kuaf.com or researchfrontiers.uark.edu, the home of research news at the University of Arkansas.